All right, guys. Welcome back to another episode of、uh, Hundred Books a Year with Kevin.、Uh, today, I want to start a new book. I have a couple episodes worth of uh, uh, topics prepared. I don't know if we're gonna get through them all in one day or two. Maybe we're gonna do a series again. So this one is called、uh, Apocalypse Never. Right? Why environmental alarmism hurt us all? I remember it was、uh, either earlier this year or last year. There was this book called、uh, "Inhabitable Earth," right? I that got a lot of steam. I think I bought it, but I haven't got to it yet. So this book,、uh, I happened to buy this in a paper version, and I just started reading it. I think it has some really cool, interesting ideas on. Okay, we are kind of gone too far with the media narrative in terms of. Climate change, and and I think I should preface this before I,、uh, I dive into deeper. Um, this book doesn't really argue that global warming doesn't exist. It does exist, and we need to do something about it. But it's not to the extent that we are hyping it to be right. And the goal for this podcast is I want to give you guys a couple examples, and then we go from there. So that's what he means by. Climate alarmism, right? And this is actually a pretty new idea, right?、Uh, he first,、uh, I think he was working on this book, but he first talked talk about this in a blog post in December twenty nineteen. And what is a typical climate alarmism, right?、Uh, something like if the a、uh, global temperature raise four、uh, degrees Celsius, uh, that uh, the Earth can no longer、uh, support one point six billion people, right? Or If、uh, global warming is not reversed by twenty thirty, the rising sea level will wipe the entire nation. Right? Either that will be,、uh, you know,、uh, Venice or you know、uh, California or something. Right? So his argument is, the media tends to turn the worst case、uh, scenario into the common case that it covers, which I think I do see his points. Right? So. Let's just start with a couple examples, and then we can kind of see what exactly is he talking about. So, the very first example is very simple, right? So, when we keep talking about this hurricane thing, right? Like, yeah, there's a、uh, there 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 seems to be a hurricane every summer now, right? That is a sign of,、um, you know, quote unquote, like、uh, climate change.、Uh, we are seeing that more often, but. He put up an example. I think are really interesting. Where a hurricane in Florida kills zero people, right? Well, a hurricane in Haiti kills about one hundred sixteen. So, what that means is, richer people in wealth are actually more resilient than poor people. So, he actually makes the argument that maybe the focus should be, hey, let's let's try to get the poor country richer. Instead of, hey, let's trying to、um, change a big picture, right? Like maybe if we can get like countries like like、uh, Haiti better and better in、uh, GDP, then maybe we have something more humane, and then we kind of go from there, right? That's not like a, a kind of the angle that this book takes at give you a maybe a more complete picture.、Um, When we talk about this climate change, right, which we also we always talk about carbon emission. So, 
carbon emissions have actually been declining for more than a decade, right? Europe, the 2018 uh, carbon emission level is actually lower, about 23% lower than 1990s. USA, from 2005 to 2016, it was lower by 15%. And global uh, temperature, it has risen, right? Like it hasn't fallen yet, but it has risen. Not to the four degrees Celsius level, but to like maybe two to, uh, two to three degrees Celsius level, right? So I guess in a sense that we should talk about this as a quote unquote, the chill pill, right? Like just, just make sure that we are more relaxed about it. And yes, there is something that needs to be done, but we need to make sure that we are not overblowing it. So uh, my favorite example in this book is the sweatshop example. Right, we all know, right? Nikes are made with made in a sweatshop, right? Uh, in a manufacturer in uh, Indonesia or Vietnam, right? Your iPhones are made in a uh, Foxconn, right? So, in fall of twenty nineteen, London Fashion Weeks, they have a uh, kind of like doomsday activate, right? They're saying that ten percent of the fashion industry are you know, uh, responsible for all, sorry, the all the fashion industry are responsible for 10% of the carbon emission, right? We're talking about, you know, like H&M, right? Like Forever 21, those fash, fashion brand, Zara. So the protesters actually had an effect, right? Where 33% of the customer that they did a survey for, they switched brands, they no longer purchased H&M. And 75% of them saying that sustainability is important to them. That's all fine and dandy. But if you're thinking about this sweatshop examples, it's actually really interesting. Um, so the author kind of paint this picture. This is what I want to spend a little bit more time on today. Well, we have the words, the world's uh, population booming and going up. The crop yields go up as well. Right, so what that means is we are needing more, uh, more uh, food to feed the people. But the thing is, is we are getting better and better with uh, agriculture. Right, there's less amount of need for farmers in now day and age because we have tractors, we have machine, so there's more need for something that's not the uh, agriculture job. Right, so. A lot of the farmers' children in those uh, not so developed world, you know, pro countries, they go to the city to get a job. And what kind of job can they get, right? The manufacturer job. So, according to the author, there are three ways that manufacturing has allowed poor country to turn into rich ones. The first way is that. Let me see. Okay, perfect. There we go. It's. It's actually really easy for poor country to uh, steal the manufacturer's secrets from rich countries. So they can implement it and they can learn it themselves, right? So they can become as efficient as a rich country is in terms of manufacturing. So essentially what we mean in this particular case is that it's very easy for poor countries to catch up in terms of gaining manufacturing abilities, right? Now, secondly, the goods that were made in a factory is actually easy to sell to other countries. So even though that they are making item, they probably cannot to buy 
I cannot afford to buy, but they can easily make them. That's not a problem, right? So in a sense that it's very hard to be like Henry Ford, right? Like, oh yeah, you manufacturing the Model T, then you're you uh, you can be able to buy it within the next couple of years. In a lot of the developing country that does the manufacturing work is actually very very hard to do that, and there are some cases in the developing country in the book where. You know, a like the like the like a farmer's children, right? Like they just don't need that much help, and then they just don't have much of a few future in the agricultural world. They go to the city, they they kind of they get a manufacturer job, and then they quickly move up, and then they got a desk job. Maybe they you know coordinate the inventory, and that's actually a better future for the farmer's offspring than just doing the agricultural work, right? And number three is. Even though it is a labor-intensive job, but it's easier for the farmer to get a job in the city for a manufacturing job where they don't have any skills, any new language. Like they don't need to get that; they just need to put on their sweat equity, right? And a prime example of this is Indonesia. So Indonesia in the sixties, right, nineteen sixty, there's a lot of government corruption, and then when manufacturing happens in Indonesia. The per capita annual income actually went up. So from 1967 to 2017, their per person GDP went from $54 in a year to $3,800 in a year. And according to the author, this was largely、uh, made possible by the manufacturing job, right? So this is a very very interesting perspective in my view that. Um, I think most people haven't realized that yes, like do we want good working qualities or good, uh, working, uh, environment for the you know uh labor workers? Yes, of course we do. But the thing is, is we are saying it in our own comfort, right? Like in our uh quote unquote developed nations level, but we never thought about what was their life like before this, and should companies always. Um, be paying more. Yeah, there's always going to be an, an argument, right? Like、uh, argument of、uh, okay, uh, you know, that、uh, you pay more for the people that make your shoes and make your phones. But the thing is, is they are getting a better life, right? Like you know, like and then this t- a type of a manufacturing job they do make sure that they can raise up the manufacturing level and raise up the GDP for the people in that country. So in that particular case, it's I don't want to call it like a win-win, but I think both countries need this type of a work environment. And I'm thinking, yeah, the U.S. like the developed nations might be getting a better end of the deal, but I think that's going to going to change in the future where the say like、uh, the GDP for、uh, Indonesia raised to like five thousand, maybe ten thousand a year, that the Table might have been changed a little bit in the sense that they probably need to get a little bit more in negotiation in terms of getting the stuff manufactured, right? So anyway, I just thought that this is an interesting book. It's not really too polarizing, but it's actually very very interesting in terms of okay, maybe we're going too far in this particular case. All right, guys, thank you for listening. You guys have a good day.